It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR. What's going on, Jim Ross? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm just uh, trying to weather these the storms rolling through Oklahoma. Uh, just another day in the in the tornado belt. Yeah, we get we get our fair share of those here in Alabama. But man, we we tore a tornado through iTunes last week. We were the top rated wrestling podcast in all the land last week. I think people were excited about our debut episode. What was the feedback you got? Oh, it's overwhelming. It was a uh, heartwarming actually, uh, really good. So I was very positive. I appreciate the fans uh, listening and telling their friends we have a new show. And, uh, so here today we are at episode number two and ready to kick some more, uh, audio ass. Well, I'm excited about it. If you missed it, tell a friend, the story of JR jumping ship from the WCW organization to the WWF is available now in the archives, anywhere you enjoy podcasts and any day now, I think it's already happened. The channel is now called Grilling JR, but you don't have to go anywhere else. If you've been listening to the Jim Ross report here on Westwood One, it's the exact same feed. And uh, we're excited to keep the train on the tracks today because we're talking about the curtain call. And this is uh, one of the more critical moments in wrestling. Uh, a lot of things are going to change, and we're going to talk about what happened, what could have happened, what was supposed to happen, what wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, but it's a pretty interesting night for professional wrestling. Um, May 16th, 1996, Madison Square Garden, New York City. And you told me off air uh, a little bit of trivia about this particular garden show and yourself. Yeah, you know, uh, when I went to work for Vince uh, in 93, soon thereafter, after some of my exits and, and re entries and so forth, uh, he wanted me to, you know, I started booking the, of the cards, uh, the, the matches at the, at the live events. And, he called me one time and he said, uh, Hey, JR, meet me at the office or meet me somewhere, meet me at home, someplace, something like that. And you can ride the garden with me. And I didn't know I was even going to the garden. So I said, Oh, okay. You want me to go to the garden? That's, that'll be good. He said, No. Well, where do you want to go? 
So that told me all I needed to know right there that I need to go to every garden show. And it was the right thing to do, quite frankly. I was just being, you know, lazy. And, you know, you work eight or ten hours a day, then you go to work another several hours to the at the uh, at an event. It makes it for a long ass day. But the, my luck, if you want to call it luck, uh, that day I had the flu, and I'd had the flu pretty much all week, hacking and coughing and sneezing. And anybody that knows the, the legends of the great Vince McMahon, you know that he's not a uh, he's not a hacker or a coffer or a sneeze person. He don't do it, and he don't want to be around it. I've seen him curse himself violently when he, when he sneezed. And uh, if somebody came, some new guy came to a meeting and they sneezed, everybody they didn't look at the guy. They looked at Vince to see what he was going to do because they knew that he didn't approve of sneezing. So the sneezing rule got me out of going to the garden on that particular night. So ironically, even though I got a wealth of uh, BS on this thing, uh, uh, information and so forth, I uh, did not go to the garden that night, and I was not present for the curtain call. But subsequently, after that event, I felt like I was there and probably <laughs> should have been there in, in hindsight, uh, based on what happened. So that was a—it was a strange day. It—it it was all you know. Easy, we had a good house. The card was strong, and the talent was over. And and uh, unlike a lot of the, the rosters uh, currently, uh, our roster actually sold out the garden a few times. So. In any event, uh, I wasn't there, but boy, howdy, do I still have memories of it. Let's talk a little bit about the garden. Uh, you mentioned, you know, that very early in your run there, you were told, well, why wouldn't you want to go to the garden? And you understood that that meant it was priority to Vince. Can you sort of put that in context for us? What the garden meant to Vince and the McMahon family? Well, it started with his, uh, grandfather, you know, uh, Jess McMahon and, and, and then it just played it forward with his dad, uh, Vincent J McMahon. Uh, the, the irony of it's always been Vince junior and Vince senior. Neither of them, neither of them were Vince or seniors or juniors. They had different names, uh, Kennedy for the, the current guru. And his dad was, uh, Vincent James McMahon. It was such a big part of their, uh, of their business, the foundation of their business. Uh, if you had success in Madison square garden, uh, you, you had leverage, uh, in negotiating with all these other venues in the, in the Northeast region of the United States. Uh, and the garden was, is, was, and will always be the number one arena in the world. So if you make it there, you make it anywhere, as they say about New York and the garden specifically here. So they, the family, it was just close to the family. They, it, it was a family tradition. Uh, you know, it was a place where even uh, Shane and Stephanie went when they were kids, uh, would, would, would go over from time to time. So, uh, it was just a family thing and it was big to the company. Uh, it was the backbone. It was the market that they, the number one market, uh, for uh, WWF and, uh, and quite frankly, it still is. If you're in the if you're in entertainment business or you're in the sports business in New York, whether we like it or not, whatever, uh, is a Mecca and it still is that way. And I guess we should mention this was a Sunday show at Madison square garden, 18,800 fans and attendance, 16,564 paid. It is a full sellout. Uh, the card was the bushwhackers defeating Marty Jannetty and Leaf Cassidy, Savio Vega, getting a win over Bob Backlund, Ahmed Johnson going to get a win over Davy boy Smith by DQ and Owen Hart interferes. Steve Austin is going to pin Jake Roberts. The ultimate warrior is going to get a win over Owen Hart. Vader's going to pin Yokozuna. The Godwins would defeat Skip and Zip to win the tag titles. 
And then of course your two top matches, uh, the ones that we're really here to talk about Hunter Hearst Helmsley is going to pin razor Ramon with the pedigree and Shawn Michaels is going to get a win over diesel in a steel cage match. Uh, late in the bout, Davy boy Smith briefly interferes and prevents the champion from escaping over the top moments later as diesel is still knocked out. Uh, Michaels is posing with the title belt. Razor Ramon comes out, hugs the champion and raises his hand. Of course, these are our baby faces, our heroes. Michaels then revived diesel, the bad guy, his opponent and waved for someone else to join him in the ring. And then Hunter Hearst Helmsley appeared and hugged Michaels before all four men embraced and held each other in their arms. It's Kevin Nash's last match at Madison square garden for seven years. Um, and his last match in the WWE for six years. So that's directly from the history of WWE.com, but we're going to talk about, you know, all the backstory of how it got here. Um, and there's lots of twists and turns along the way. And there's been tons of debate and discussion about when the attitude era officially started. You know, did it start with the Montreal screw job? Did it start with DX? Did it start with Austin and Mike Tyson the night uh, after the Royal Rumble in 1998? I don't know that this is really the start of the attitude era, but it is certainly a, a shift in professional wrestling with knowing what's about to happen on the other channel with these two characters who are leaving the territory. There's about to be a major shift in professional wrestling. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know, it's arguable what started the attitude era, uh, Conrad, I, everybody could make a story, a, a good case for several things, but. Uh, all everything you mentioned certainly would be a candidate, but without a doubt, the curtain call uh, ushered in a new philosophy to some degree of uh, of the of the uh, of wrestling. It was really that behind the scenes thing and pulling the curtain back and dropping the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it was just a uh, it was a different time in the business. And again, as we mentioned moments ago about the garden. If it happened in, uh, you know, in all due respect in Des Moines or Oklahoma city, uh, or someplace normal <laughs> garden's not normal. It's the, it's the biggest thing in the, in the, in the business, uh, for, for uh, wrestling or boxing or concerts or whatever, but nonetheless, uh, it was the garden. And that's what made it really so impactful to me is it happened in the biggest market in the country in the biggest arena in the country, most famous, blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah, there's a good story to be made. I think about the, when the attitude era started, I'm with you though. However, I didn't really perceive the curtain call of starting the attitude era, but I can see it contributing to the start of the attitude era. And a lot of that is based around Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. So let's touch on that. Both of these guys become huge stars in the WWF, but before that happened, they were struggling down in WCW in 1991. And you were still there at the time. Of course, Kevin Nash was steel half of the master blasters tag team. And then he was Oz and then he was Vinny Vegas and Scott Hall was known as the diamond stud. When you were with these guys in WCW, you obviously uh, got to know them on a more personal level. Maybe you guys weren't best of friends, but you knew them beyond their Oz character. You saw their size. You saw their ambition. Did you know that these guys were going to be big stars? They just didn't have the right packaging at the time. I think, uh, I felt that because they had that, that luxury of size, you know, Kevin's almost seven feet and, uh, Scott about six, 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 seven, I think at that time, somewhere in that neighborhood, they're big guys and big guys turn promoters heads. Uh, big guys can walk through airports and get noticed and believe it or not, that's one of the yardsticks I've heard promoters use time and time again, 
well, if that guy walked through the airport, you sure as hell look at him. That kind of deal. So that was her. Uh, and both of them were, Scott Hall was a very accomplished worker uh, and really, really uh, bright as far as the uh, processes within the business. He understood the business very, very well uh, and had a good head for the finishes and things of that nature. Kevin, I met Kevin uh, when he was working the, uh, as a, a bouncer at uh, uh, one of the strip clubs there. I think maybe the Cheetah. I'm not sure. I think, but anyway, uh, in Atlanta where I frequented time, time of time being unmarried. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, he was a big, good looking guy, seven feet tall. Again, he stands out. And, uh, so we got to talking and, uh, then, uh, he got, uh, uh, somebody else met him. I think maybe, I don't think maybe Jerry Briscoe or somebody met him as well. Got him hooked up with the uh, WCW people. And so he could start training and still keep his job there at the, uh, at the club. So, but uh, Kevin and I had a better relationship because, uh, than I did with Scott and no particular reason other than, uh, you know, Kevin was not on the road and he could really talk. He was a great conversationalist. He was funny. He was glib and he had that look. So consequently, when, uh, uh, I, I started doing my radio show on WSB, uh, you know, and I'd, time to time I'd, you know, bring in guests if they were local and, so forth. He, he was my, he was one of my regular guests on my show. And I remember telling Dusty, uh, I said, man, this guy can talk. He's, he's really good. But so in other words, I was trying to convince anybody that would listen that he had a lot of potential, but, but Oz wasn't going to get it. And I, but I think Oz was also ironically for Kevin, uh, another failed attempt by WCW at that time to out WWE, the WWE, and that ain't going to happen. So uh, that was kind of the situation there, Conrad. I think both of them were solid guys in, in, in that regard. Uh, but I was much closer to Kevin than I was with Scott. Well, Scott Hall comes in to the WWF as a heel in 1992, but quickly becomes one of the more popular characters in the company. He wins the intercontinental title four times, which I believe was a record at the time. Uh, when Nash comes in, uh, he has no trouble becoming a triple crown winner. He wins the intercontinental title and then the tag titles with Shawn Michaels. And even the world title. Uh, so come 1996, these guys are, are big stars. They're well-established main players and behind the scenes, you've heard all the rumor and innuendo, uh, they're half of the click, or I guess, you know, two fifths. Uh, we round out the click with Sean Michaels, Sean Waltman, and of course, later Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And there's been talk that from time to time they'd hang out with uh, just incredible or Aldo Montoya, uh, PJ Walker, whatever you want to call him and Louis Piccoli. We're going to do another episode, another time about the click. I'm sure. But, uh, how was the office? Not Vince McMahon, not Bruce Pritchard, but Jr. your office mm. at the time. What was your impression of the click? Because they've been villainized over the years and people have pretty strong opinions. You love them or you hate them. And, and there's been lots of talk about, you know, a special relationship that existed for whatever reason between Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon. Were they a pain in your ass? Did you fall on the loved them or hated them side? I, uh, I liked them because they entertained me and they were good to me. They were respectful, believe it or not. Um, uh, Sean, uh, Sean and I had a relationship going back to his first territory when he worked for cowboy and, and Jose Lothario got Sean a job from mid South. Uh, so I've known Sean his entire career literally. Uh, and of course my relationship with Kevin, you know, we had a lot in common. 
other than like to looking like like looking at naked women. Uh, we also enjoyed sports. He's a great sports fan. Played ball, basketball, as you know, at the SEC and at Tennessee. So uh, I never had any issues with these cats. And quite frankly, Sean and Kevin were kind of the leaders of that deal. If not, and maybe Kevin more than anybody. Uh, the other uh, Waltman got kind of adopted. Uh, talented son of a gun, he, he, as he is, uh, got adopted by the group. Sometimes I think he would probably admit to for their comedic entertainment because they'd pass around the chocolate cake and then funny things would happen from time to time. So, but I never had any issues with him, Conrad. I, I, uh, no more issues than I would have normally with anybody else, either a payoff's too low or, uh, they need a day off or whatever, whatever, same old stuff. Normally when talents have issues, one of the two C's almost invariably, the two C's are cash and creative. So when you hear about a wrestler having an issue, uh, even today, especially today, it's generally about one of the two C's. So if they would have an issue about one of the two C's from time to time, I, I found out the way to tell them what's going on or what to communicate with them better said is, uh, be honest and upfront and cut to the chase and don't BS them because they're too good at BSers themselves that they saw it coming. So I didn't have a major issues with them. My major, my, my issues, I don't know if they're major were the fact that they pissed off some other guys from time to time. And still the other guys going to, and dealing with these, these guys, uh, Sean and his group, Hunter and all those cats, uh, they just bitch about it. And so all those things do is linger and fester. So we try to address issues in that regard, but you know, they weren't, they weren't as bad to me as allegedly they were to other people. So I'm glad you brought that up because lots of other guys have come out in the, the shoot interview era of the late nineties and early two thousands. And they would, you know, make no bones about the fact that they felt like their career wasn't what it could have been because the click had interfered. The click had went to the office and, and turned, you know, Vince or Jr. or whoever against them. Do you remember there being a time where, you know, a Kevin Nash or a Scott Hall came to you and said, Hey, we don't like working with this guy. He's the shits. Take him off the card. Um, trying to think there might've been a, a eyebrow raise on some bookings here or there. Uh, but Hey, here's the thing about those guys. They had a great feel for the business. I believed at that time that WWE WWF needed to make some, uh, philosophical changes in our presentation. In other words, that, you know, we needed to, I thought to get away from, uh, all these, uh, outlandish eye rolling characters that basically cater to a, you know, youthful demo, which means that you're kind of turning your back on your male 18 to 34, 18 to 49 demo, which is not turning your back might be too strong a word, but it's just, you aren't catering to them. You're catering to their children, the little brothers, the little sisters, whatever it may be. So I was always thinking that we need to change because, you know, the old, what's the old saying, you know, you. You, you do the same thing over and over. Don't expect this, a different result. It's yeah. going to be the same stuff, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. There you go. Thank you, Conrad. See there, see there kids, what you get for reading, go to school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyhow, that was kind of the deal, man. I just, they had a good sense, a good pulse for the, uh, for the, what, where the business was. And it happened to coincide with what I believe should have been, was a necessary change which would foster us, even though we didn't know the destination at the time to the, uh, eventual attitude era being real, uh, working on, you know, accelerating real personalities into their TV character, 
uh, it, people feel like they're not being uh, worked as badly or as, or as prominently. So uh, they, they, they were that they were what I was looking for in the sense of, can we, can we get a different attitude? And so, and I think that's what they brought to the table. They saw the need for change and they saw it because of their paychecks, you know, uh, they wanted to make bigger money and, and draw more people. And what we were doing, I don't know, was going to draw more people. Uh, let's fast forward here to March of 1996 Meltzer would report that while nothing is official, Scott Hall is expected to join WCW after his contract and legal commitments with the WWF end in late May. Uh, he would write quote in a situation spoken of with some disdain by WWF CEO, Vince McMahon, Scott Hall sent a telegram to McMahon on February 21st, officially giving his 90 day notice that he was leaving the company on the same day. Hall was suspended by the WWF for six weeks for reason, theoretically having nothing to do with him giving notice, causing him to miss his scheduled appearances this past weekend. The suspension would take him a few days past WrestleMania, which Hall was no doubt counting on as his last big payday before leaving. Um, let's talk about that. There's lots to break down here. Um, it's been no secret that he was unhappy with the WWF in recent months. He wasn't really pleased with the decision uh, by creative to have him feud with gold dust. He vetoed that concept and, and, and seeing it through, uh, in favor of working with Hunter Hearst Helmsley or one, two, three kid. He was also unhappy with the baby bottle and diaper angle leading into the pay-per-view. And he had some family pressure at home as well. And in the middle of all this, uh, he's got an offer from WCW and it's guaranteed money and allegedly an easier schedule as well. So if I'm going to be home more and I'm going to get to spend more time with my family and I'll have less road expenses, uh, it can maybe repair some challenges I have at home and I can make more money and, um, it's a win-win that's sort of the narrative that's out there. You were there. What can you tell us? uh, I think, uh, you make a good case. It's honest and it's, it's, uh, it's truthful. I, my only issues, the issue of Scott leaving was not, uh, debatable to me. I thought that, you know, he, his Scott had issues at home and the schedule that we were, uh, utilizing at that time was very, very aggressive. And of course you get into the same old deal. Fans talk, well, there's no off season. Okay. You know, that, that off season thing is a little bit blown out of proportion in my view. And here's why. You got a great big roster. It's a matter of, uh, it's a matter of uh, scheduling. And if you want somebody to have time off then you just book it and you, and you figure it out and you, and you get your career instead of, and then created that would raise hell because somebody wasn't available. But the bottom line is, is you couldn't, you couldn't run the horses too damn hard. You know, you can't just run until they drop. And that's kind of the situation we were in. So he makes a, you make a very valid points about Scott Hall's deal. I think of two things. One is. He wanted to, uh, make, he wanted to try to keep his family together, which was challenging for him with his lifestyle and the job that he had, the schedule that he kept, uh, and he wanted to make more money. Uh, so here we go about cash. It's one of the two C's again, cash this time and some creative. I, I thought that the Scott Hall Goldust match would have been probably off the hook because both of them can work like crazy and they, they match up well. And I thought that would have been a great match. Uh, on the way to a Sean match or a Hunter match or kid match, whatever it may be. I don't know, but I, I thought that was uh, probably a little bit, uh, it didn't do Scott any favors because he didn't want to work with anybody, but his buddies seemingly. 
So I, th- I don't think that did him any favors in the locker room, but I certainly understand the fact of, of negotiating for a better deal financially and, uh, with more time at home, all those things you said. So I wasn't surprised that he was wanting to leave because, you know, one thing about Scott, Scott's a very vocal guy and he's a good communicator. So if he has something on his mind, you're going to, you're going to get it figured out. He doesn't, he's not one of those guys that beats around the bush. So I knew from talking to him that he wasn't happy because again, the payroll, the payoffs, you know, I, I was involved in that with Vince and at that point in time. And, uh, it was hard. It was hard for uh, all of us to, you know, you couldn't create new money because the houses weren't drawing. We started drawing a little bit and started doing pretty good, but, uh, around that time, but I was not surprised whatsoever. He, I believe quite frankly, to tell you the truth, Conrad, uh, I, I believe in hindsight that Scott Hall made the right decision in going to WCW. And I believe that, uh, uh, it was the smartest thing for him to do. I just believe that there, there was a better way of carrying that message. Uh, looking back at it, that, you know, he knew what he wanted to do. And it seemed like we got the, you know, when he sent the telegram to give Vince this notice, you know, it could have been done in person the previous uh, two or three days, that same week that wasn't done. And that kind of, that was kind of annoying in that regard. But, uh, you know, be that as it may, I think at the end of the day, whether the right procedures and protocol was used or not, he got, he made the right call. I guess we should mention that, um, Meltzer right. When the office crew returned after talking about from a tour, uh, after booking Ramon in a strong position for the future, they had a telegram from him giving notice. So it feels like you guys were trying to, uh, I don't know, appease him and make him happy and acquiesce to his demands. And then he slides this in, but apparently that a lot of that stems from the idea that he earned less in 1995 than he did in 94. Meltzer would write, it's believed he earned 270 grand in 1995, well down from what he earned in 94, which was supposed to be more than $400,000. I mean, if the shoe was on the other foot, hypothetically, good old Jr. might be looking for a new deal too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, it's about the money and. You know, we're not, we gave up our amateur status and we started taking a paycheck. So that don't count. We can't go to the Olympics anyway. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I, I, I think that he made the right call and damn right. Uh, you know, I, I, I can, Hey, recently I've, I can relate to that because me signing with AEW was, uh, along those same lines, as far as, uh, moving to a new location and hanging your shingle on somebody else's uh, building, uh, because it, a lot of it was about opportunity and the money. I think at that stage in Scott's career, uh, money was the paramount thing. He had a young family, uh, and again, somewhat dysfunctional at times. I think, I think the time that has passed proved that out. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he made the right call. As I said earlier, it's just how he delivered the message probably could have been done a little bit more efficiently and a little bit more, uh, I don't know if I want to say respectfully, is that a, I don't know if that's a right analogy or not, but. Uh, that was the only thing I saw that was probably was a little bit, uh, off Kelter was how he went about it. Let's touch base briefly on what the original plan for WrestleMania 12 was. Of course, we know we got a Hollywood backlot brawl between Goldust and Roddy Piper, but the original plan, uh, as it's written in the observer was it's supposed to be live via satellite as part of the WrestleMania show. And it would theoretically take place in Miami on a downtrodden street. And, uh, it's going to be similar to the, uh, uh, the way they did the uncensored show for WCW, where you had 
a cutaway match where Dustin Rhodes and Blacktop Bully. So this Miami street fight was the original idea. Did that plan change once he gave notice or did Scott Hall not want to do that prior to the notice? Scott didn't want to work with gold dust. So at any environment and you know, again, uh, that would have been a featured match at WrestleMania, which would probably got him a nice payday. Uh, unfortunately that didn't happen for him and because he didn't want, he didn't want to work with, uh, with Dustin. So again, and I don't, I don't think it really so much about him not wanting to work with Dustin. He didn't like Dustin. He may not have been enamored with the, uh, persona of the gold dust androgynous character. Uh, or however you want to describe him. But, uh, I think the main thing is that he just, he, he still was hell bent on working with his, his friends. And I think maybe in the back of his mind, he knew that his days there may be numbered because he's going to be trying to find another spot to go. His contract was going to come up for uh, renewal. And, uh, and you know, there's a case to be made also that we have those, you know, most of those contracts are no guarantee to, to any degree. I think, you know, $150 a night for, you know, six or 10 nights. It's ridiculous, but that's everybody. Everybody, everybody signed it, whether they liked it or not, because it was an opportunity. Most people just said, okay, what the hell? I'm going to, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to work. I'm going to be a good soldier. And I'm going to make a lot of money here because I'm going to be on the road a lot. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal, Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. But the, you still got to draw houses. You still got to have an ass every 18 inches, and we weren't doing that very well. So, uh, you know, the roster just was, had gotten stale and and, uh, mundane. And, and we fit, we had a t- ton of guys that found their comfort zone. They were in the WWE WWF at the time. And man, how good is this? My lifelong dream. And, uh, they were almost marks for themselves. Some of those guys, but the money wasn't there to what they wanted it to be and what they needed it to be. So that's where I think Scott kind of, I think it was all about the money at the end of the day, all about the money. And he knew that he couldn't force Vince's hand to, uh, make, you know, to, 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 to make sure that Scott got booked with guys. He only, only the guys he wanted to, I didn't, I never talked to the only, uh, the only other time I ever heard anybody, uh, stone cold told me one time, uh, I, we booked him with, uh, at Vince's insistence with Mark Marrow in LA. And, uh, that was, uh, that was didn't go over well. And Steve didn't know who he was even working with. He got to the building and he got the building and He's working with Marrow and then under Jack Lanza called me and our, one of the agents, he said, uh, our boy stone cold is pissed. JR I said, how come? <laughs> well, he didn't want to work with Marrow tonight. Okay. And what else? Well, you had him going on, uh, in the middle of the card so he could get on the road early to do TV. 
And I said, yeah. And he said, he don't like that either. I said, he don't like anything today, does he? I said, okay, let me, give me a, give me a second. So I rebooked the card, got Austin, another opponent. He didn't work with Mero and uh, he did and he went on last. So I saw him at, see him at TV and he said, I said, look, Vince wanted you to work with Mero. I, I, that wasn't my original idea. I'm not just passing a buck. If I was, I tell you. And, uh, so he didn't want to do that. And he said, but I worked my, the, the thing that stuck out to me was I worked my whole goddamn life to be able to close the show at a WWF event. And we're in the second biggest market in the nation. And you guys, uh, want me to go on in the middle of the card. And I said, he said, I'm going to close the show period. So I said, sounds good to me. Just trying to be, uh, you know, help, help you out here. You know, there was no big argument, but that was his contention. But in all the years I was there, other than Scott and, and, and Dustin and Steve and Mark Merrow, I didn't, there was no issues in that respect. So it was kind of unusual and Vince didn't take well to that stuff. And Vince, I don't know when he got the age report about Steve and Merrow, he said, what the hell happened to Merrow and Austin? I said, well, Austin didn't want to work with him. So you know, it's pretty simple. And, and he's our top, he's becoming a massive star. And you mentioned earlier about Sean and Vince having a great relationship. Every owner slash booker has in the past generally had a, uh, great relationship with their top stars. That's, that was, that's been age old deal. And I remember watching bringing in top guys for booking meetings to help them book their program, their, 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 their matches. So because Watts's theory was, if you get these guys, these guys can be a part of the, of the problem. And the solution more specifically, then all of a sudden you're going to be, uh, having a little doing business with them a lot easier, a lot more smoothly, let them be a part of the uh, idea and they'll execute it better. So that was made sense to me. So that's, that's kind of how that worked. It wasn't just acquiescing and kissing ass with every talent that had an issue, but you got to pick your, you had to pick your spots there, Conrad, the top guys, are, they're going to, they're going to be treated differently. This is not a democracy. And if you just think it's going to a wrestling locker room and everybody's treated the same, you're full of shit. It just didn't work that way. Scott Hall says he got the offer from WCW and signs a letter of intent with them. And that's when he gave the 90 day notice to the WWF. And to your point, WWF contracts were one year and they automatically rolled over. If he didn't give a 90 day notice, not necessarily saying that you were leaving, but stating that you didn't want your contract to roll over. And of course. Scott Hall had that same type of contract you alluded to. It's a one-year deal that keeps rolling over 10 matches a year, 150 bucks a match. So your guarantee is only $1,500 a year. And Scott would say that he didn't want to leave. He just didn't want his contract to roll over. And he wanted to sit down and have a serious talk with Vince about money. And he felt like he was growing as a performer and more a part of the company, but his pay, it started to plateau. So he goes to Vince and asks him what he needs to do to improve. Is it my in-ring work? Is it my mic work? And Vince said something like, no, you're one of the best we got. And Hall said, well, I'm just curious because my pay started to plateau and I want to make the big money like the guys who preceded him. And Scott Hall flies to Connecticut for a meeting and he says he went in prepared and he told Vince uh, that he looks at his merchandise statements. And if we (laughs) move the decimal point over by one spot, would the McMahon family really notice because the hall family really would notice. (laughs) And Vince said, Nope, I'm not going to do that. I give you the same deal. I give taker and Sean and Kevin. Nope, not going to do it. And then he asked if he could have four or five weeks a year 
to go to Japan and get big paydays over there. Now, for some of our younger listeners who are listening to this, that is something that happened a long time ago with uh, American stars, the Stan Hansons of the world, the Brodies of the world. They'd go over and make 10 grand a week or something for 10 weeks a year. And uh, that adds up. And of course, Vince is having nothing to do with this. The idea is, uh, you know, Scott thinks he's worth a million dollars a year. That's what he wanted to sit down and ask for. Um, and he, he felt like if I can't get that, at least give me the opportunity to go work, uh, and in Japan and earn some big money there. And Vince shoots that down too. Are you privy to this meeting? Are you in the meeting? Do you just hear about it after the fact? No, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, privy to it. Uh, my role was not at that point in time was not clear. I think JJ was still involved too. JJ Dillon. Uh, and so I was very much aware of it. Uh, I just, the theory pretty much in a nutshell is that Vince didn't want to bust the system up. Uh, he had, a, he had a system that was, that, uh, he felt like was, was working and, uh, didn't want to change it. And the fact that he probably thought, you know, I can't speak for Vince, but he probably thought that Scott was not worth a million dollars. So uh, in a million dollars, is a, you know, that's 19,000, I think it's 19,000 and change a week. Uh, so. Uh, that's a lot of cash and he's, he's, uh, he just didn't want to change that situation. I think he was, I think he'd probably been willing to give Scott a raise, but the issue of, of the guaranteed contracts is where it all, that all came back to, you know, if you're not going to do guaranteed contracts, you can't say, well, you're going to make this. Okay. Then you got to write that down for me. You got to put that on paper. Cause I don't believe you. Uh, and most wrestlers are distrustful and, and a little bit paranoid and they don't trust quote unquote, the office. So I think that's where that was. Well, Scott was more of an old school like guy like that. He had a different mindset than Kevin did, uh, because Scott had been around a lot longer and had been playing and been in that, been in the game longer. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I was well aware of the meeting. It, it didn't go well. And, uh, you know, I don't know that, uh, either one of them, either guy, Vince or Scott did themselves any great favors, uh, by having that meeting and it, uh, and, and, and it going the way it did based on how things worked out. I guess we should mention here that, um, the news comes down about the failure when Scott Hall is at a spot show in New Jersey, uh, him and undertaker are supposed to work twice on that show because Sean and diesel weren't there. Uh, so when Scott's in the back, Tony Gurria comes up to him and says they wanted him to call the doctor, uh, which he he's always referred to as the piss doctor in Toronto. Hall called, but the doctor wasn't home. So he didn't answer. So Scott Hall goes back to getting dressed for the show and Gurria comes back to him and says, Hey, they want you to leave the building. And Hall tells Gurria that the results of the test, which were six weeks old was supposed to be confidential. And he says to Gurria, you know, the results of my test before I do. And then he says, I guess they got my notice. (laughs) So let's talk about this. You know, Scott clearly feels like that. If he had, uh, failed the drug test, it's been insinuated over the years that it would have been for marijuana. And at the time, the company was not always taking a hard stance on that, but now magically when they get the notice, uh, he's suspended for six weeks and this is an old test. And it's not like he just took the test. The test was six weeks old and now he's suspended for six more weeks. Uh, you had to handle some of this. I'm sure what really happened. Well, he flunked the test <clears throat> and, uh, I'm not so sure Conrad, uh, uh, how long it's, this is not like an episode of, uh, 
Law and Order SVU. We don't get the results back in the, before commercial break on uh, some of that stuff. Processes and procedures uh, to get your results were not quite as obviously as uh, advanced as they are now. So I don't really know if that six weeks is kind of normal. It seems like it was a lot more normal than people perceived it to be. You know, it's obviously uh, a lot of folks would rather write about a conspiracy and talk about that. And I can understand why. I mean, it is it's very coincidental in that regard. Is it too coincidental? I don't know. Maybe. But I do know that he, that uh, medically uh, and officially uh, he flunked a test. And then when the results came back, uh, you know, that's when the announcement was made. It coincided with him giving his notice. Some people will never, you'll never convince some people that, that there are two different issues. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be, uh, just always think, well, you know, uh, we screwed Scott Hall and I don't, I certainly didn't pursue that to be the case, but obviously when you flunk a test, there's gotta be some penalty for it. And, and that was how that went down. So in six weeks, I don't think six weeks was a, uh, uh, the, the suspension was was un un uh, yielding. I think it's kind of the normal deal. So you know, uh, I, I I just don't think that it was a I don't think it was a conspiracy. But again, it certainly has a lot of the components of one. Of course, McMahon is quoted in the Pro Wrestling Torch as saying, "There's nothing I can do about that coincidence. People will draw their own conclusions, and there's nothing I can do about that. I'm a sitting duck. Anyone can say anything they want about it, but one thing is for sure." No one has anything to worry about if they don't test positive. Um, that's pretty well take, take, take care of business right there. He's, he's right about that. Sure. He's he right about both those statements. Now, again, you go back, well, but, but was he telling the truth? You know, I, I am of the impression. All I remember is that, uh, there was a failed drug test and I believe it was for marijuana, but I don't know. I can't remember that far back. I can't remember, imagine being anything else. Which, if you think about it, is somewhat ludicrous. I think uh, these some of these marijuana tests are uh, done just for political correctness now by companies, and they're they're worried that they're scared of their shadow about what their their public image is going to be, without knowing that you're a goddamn wrestling show. It's always you're, the professional wrestling shows are going to have a certain image and certain uh, baggage that are, travels along with them, and ain't a damn thing you can do about it. But, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it just, it was unfortunate how it worked out, but it certainly loaded the wagon on Scott and made the company look bad. And, uh, but I, all I can tell you from my experience, there was a flunk drug test and as protocol would have it, procedures would have it. Generally the six week penalty is normal. And as soon as you can get them off the road and start there. And the reason for that was you want to start the suspension early. So you get them back earlier. You wait several weeks and all of a sudden you got more time to add on or set them at home. It's not a good thing. So that's kind of where I see that thing. I, 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 I don't believe it was a, a conspiracy, but I can, I'm not going to make an argument or argue with anybody that does, because it, there are a lot of elements there that would cause one to raise an eyebrow. Let's keep it going here. I, I do want to mention that, uh, as, as luck may have it. Kevin Nash has his contract expire six days apart from Scott Hall. So let's switch gears to Kevin Nash. Meltzer report in early March, Kevin Nash officially gave notice that he would be leaving the world wrestling federation to accept an offer from WCW in a phone call to Vince McMahon at 10 50 AM on March 5th. 
No, here's the, I guess, ask this question. Thank you. Uh, who the hell knew? Who, how did Meltzer know that the phone call came at 10:50 a.m.? I've always been fascinated by that. So here's the answer. Here's my question to you: Who was the stooge? I don't. I don't know. I I I don't know that. I I remember Vince telling me and others, I'm sure, that Kevin Nash is, had uh, was giving his notice, uh, had given his notice, and was going to leave. And look, it, it wasn't you had to be a the valedictorian of the Sherlock Holmes detective school to figure out if you're leaving WWE and you make a living as a pro wrestler, the only other place you can go to make the money you seek is WCW and the Turner money. So that was not a, that was a layup. Uh, so we knew that that was his, be his destination. Uh, but his contract was coming up. There's nothing we could do about it. And I'm sure if Kevin sat down with Vince to look at a new deal, he's going to want somewhere in that million dollar range. And, uh, we had a lot of guys, established guys in the roster that were men event guys, you know, at that time, I don't know. If, I don't think Taker even made a million dollars a year. I don't think Shawn Michaels contract was guaranteed for a million dollars a year. Uh, so they were asking for something that, uh, and as I, as I recall, Conrad, that didn't even exist. So we're breaking all kinds of things and. Uh, ceilings and, and, and all these, all the stuff. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, Kevin was, but Kevin was a, a very monetary dude. Kevin plays the stock market. He's a, he's very well read. He's intelligent. Kevin's motivation was money. And I'm sure <clears throat> he would tell you that, uh, also, you know, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to have, have more influence in his creative, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I always felt like uh, he had the relationship with the events that he had influence on how he was booked and the creator that he did and who he worked with at the big shows, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I, I, never, I thought that was a, that would have been a kind of a week out. So I think it comes back to one thing, cash and, uh, the cash for a guy that was at the top of the card, the champion, a triple crown rent winner who's seven feet tall, uh, and, uh, could talk, uh, was, uh, you know, he, he was sitting in a wonderful spot. And, and as it worked out, he, he, he cashed in on that spot. I guess we should mention here that, um, the report in the observer is that Nash is going to be taking a three-year deal from WCW ranging from four fifty to seven fifty, depending on who you believe. Uh, the notice of course comes less than two weeks after Scott Hall gave his notice and Nash says that the motivation for this, uh, came from a conversation with Scott Hall where it was said that he was making above sting money and Nash says that amongst the boys sting money was a phrase. Did you ever hear about sting money? Of course. Yeah. He was top fake guy there. Uh, uh, you know, in WCW, uh, for a good while, many years, uh, he was, the, he was the, you know, he was the, he was the it guy sting was and, uh, and, uh, and deserved it quite frankly. He was sting was probably the only. I can't think of another star that WCW actually developed that had the, uh, tenure and the imp impact that Steve Borden did as Sting. So he got, he got top bread and I'm sure Flair was in that same conversation when they were there at the same time. Uh, but yeah, Sting money was a, that was a, that was just a slang that uh, meant, you know, I'm getting paid as much as anybody else in the company. And that's what they, those guys wanted. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. 
You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Nash says at first he didn't want to leave the company because he was loyal to Vince because Vince was the first guy who really believed in him as a wrestler. You know, the previous incarnations in his life being things like Vinny Vegas and Oz. So he tells McMahon, Hey, if you're willing to match the offer, I'll stay. And McMahon refuses because. Uh, Vince says, if I do that for you, then I've got to do that for all the other wrestlers. And we just are not in the financial position to do that. A true statement. Okay. Absolute true statement, Conrad. It just, if you, the precedent of, of guaranteeing that level of money based on where we were financially in the company, people got to understand that uh, in the mid nineties there, uh, many of us that worked in WWF, uh, took massive pay cuts. I got my pay uh, cut 50 grand a year, I believe it was, uh, in a little meeting I had with Vince and, uh, uh, the HR lady, Lisa Wolf, uh, so aptly named, but nonetheless, uh, the, you know, I had a meeting that lasted five minutes, you know, we're, we're going to, I'm asking all the wrestling people to, uh, take a cut and pay. And, uh, and I'm asking you to do the same thing. Uh, but if you stay with me. Uh, I, I will, you won't regret it. I'll make it up to you, uh, without anything written down or guaranteed, not even a handshake, just this word. And, uh, and that's how that worked out. And then he also said, by the way, and if JR, if you want to leave, I won't hold you to your contract. I understand you got, you know, yeah, you know, this is not what you signed on for. And I, you know, I was willing to, you know, me and Jan, Jan and I were there and, and, uh, we were, you know. Well, Jan was there yet. She was still kind of in limbo with me, but we were working on it. But nonetheless, uh, that's kind of where that was, you know, just he, everybody got it. And that, and that's what prompted JJ to, to leave. And, uh, he, cause JJ had a big nut, uh, a special needs child, young children, younger, young wife, a lot of obligations cause there's no, no finer guy that I ever worked with in wrestling than JJ Dillon, honest uh, loyal, but he had, to ha- he needed the money for his, uh, care of his kids. And when he got cut in pay, that just crippled him. So, you know, he, he left. I remember he left Bruce and I were in uh, South Africa doing a show. And, uh, so that's kind of where we are there, Conrad. I think, uh, you know, these, uh, Kevin and, and Kevin's motivation was the cash and Vince could not upset and blow up the entire infrastructure based on our, our, uh, our, uh, revenues, this wasn't going to happen. Let's, uh, talk about the other piece. You said a minute ago, it was all about the two C's, the cash and the creative. So he knows he's got this money offer. He knows he's got a guarantee. He doesn't really want to take it. We get to the February 96 pay-per-view in your house, rage in the cage. And 
Uh, Kevin Nash as diesel, of course, is challenging Bret Hart for the world title in a cage match. And during the planning of the match, Nash said the finish was he was going to hit Bret with the jackknife power bomb. And then undertaker was going to come from under the ring and pull diesel back under with him. And as that happened, Bret would escape the cage and win the match. Doing the finish this way would add a lot of heat to diesel and undertaker at WrestleMania 12, because it would look like undertaker cost diesel, the world title just as Diesel had cost Undertaker the world title the prior month at Royal Rumble. But Nash said Brett didn't want to do it that way. And uh, Nash has been on record as saying the Undertaker got mad when Brett was speaking up about the finish and said something like, motherfucker, everything isn't about you. Brett, of course, took it to Vince. Vince sides with his champion, Brett. They don't do the powerbomb as Nash wanted to do. And after the match, he's still upset about Vince siding with Brett. So Kevin Nash goes to Scott Hall and says, I'm fucking coming. Um, do you remember there being some sort of pushback about the finish at the February pay-per-view? Yeah, I do. And, uh, I also remember talking to, uh, Kevin, I don't know if they used it in this match or not. I said, Kevin, you know, is, uh, the quick one, the old Pat Patterson quick one can be uh, applied here. And I said, something as simple as an inside cradle or small package uh, that, uh, that, uh, we could call, I said, it could be something like that. He said, well, people believe I said, yeah, Kevin, it's a real hold. See, Kevin was a basketball player. He wasn't an amateur wrestler. And you know, if you were talking to an amateur wrestler, they know you, they know that those type maneuvers are legitimate pinning combinations. And, uh, it, it's logical. If you understand the basis of that. Uh, but I remember t- talking to him about that and he, and he came around and he understood it. He just had to have co- communication. He, he was so highly, in- he's so intelligent, big IQ that he, he, he read through the BS and, and clear out the smoke and see what was really there. And that's why I got along with him. You know, I didn't BS him. I, we, we had a good relationship. We enjoyed uh, our, each other's company more often than not. And, you know, he was entertaining to me and, and, and I just, you know, I, but he didn't have that. He didn't have the product knowledge at that time that Scott Hall did. Scott had been around longer, had more, more miles uh, on the journey than Kevin, not to say that Kevin didn't catch up and arguably surpass Scott or anybody else around with what he, with his, uh, booking beliefs and philosophies. But, uh, yeah, there were some little concerns about that. See that that all stems back from, you know, uh, Brett and Sean, not getting along all the time and having a little rivalry and and all that stuff. And maybe little rivalries is not a, is an understatement, but I, I still think that, that, uh, I think the guys in the click kind of perceived bread as the enemy. And, uh, and to some degree, he was not on their team. Uh, so that's kind of where I looked at that thing, Conrad. It just, it was, a it was, a it was a political issue that was based on creative issues. Now, not the C one other C creative and and they just, they didn't see eye to eye philosophically. And quite frankly, uh, Brett had some very, uh, valid, uh, reasons for th- the whether taking the jackknife power bomb was one or not. I don't, I don't think, but uh, there's, there had to be a good reason behind it. So normally Brett's, uh, uh, pushback was based on his guts and his experience, uh, uh in the, in the business. And some guys, you know, there's a lot of different philosophies, you know, are you, a, are you a fastball pitcher? Are you a jump pitcher? Are you, are you a breaking ball pitcher? What are you? 
everybody's got something that brought him to the game and got him in the game. And Brett's knowledge of that was one of the things that got him there. And he had strong beliefs of his philosophy of the wrestling business. And to be honest with you, I don't quite frankly disagree with any of the things that Brett said about the philosophy, the philosophies of wrestling. He's very, very bright and very solid. Fundamentally. He grew up in that atmosphere when business was more straightforward and more simplistic. So, uh, it was a, it was always a little issues there. And that one kind of manifests itself. I didn't know that the undertaker had made that statement in that closed door meeting, uh, regarding Brett. Uh, I can see frustration seeping in and that happening, but you know, I never knew undertaker and Brett to have any issues whatsoever that this is news to me on this, on this, uh, on this day. Let's talk about a conversation that Nash had with Vince, um, allegedly before he signs. He catches Vince in front of the building one day and says, Hey, I don't want to leave, but my wife is six and a half months pregnant. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills day to day or week to week, because my year is dependent on my WrestleMania payday. If it's a strong year, it's because it was a strong WrestleMania payday. But if it's not, then we got to figure something else out. And Nash tells Vince the number that WCW had offered. And he said, I don't want you to, you know, necessarily match the money. You just need to guarantee a certain portion of it. And WCW, according to Nash at the time is offering him 800 grand and Vince doesn't want to even come close to a guarantee like that. Uh, this is actually working in both his and Scott Hall's favor because Scott Hall allegedly is one of the first guys to negotiate a favored nations clause in his contract. So behind the scenes, Scott Hall is pushing WCW, Hey, offer him a little more money and he'll come with the idea being if Nash comes in at a bigger dollar figure, bigger dollar figure, Scott Hall's money will be bumped up as well. Um, of course that's the way it winds up happening. Uh, it's decided WWF can't compete with that. So, uh, Nash puts over undertaker at WrestleMania, and then he puts over Sean at one last pay-per-view and supposedly Vince asked him to lose to the ultimate warrior on Monday night raw and Kevin Nash agreed to take care of business with the undertaker and Shawn Michaels, but did not want to do a match with the ultimate warrior on raw. And ultimately that didn't happen. Do you remember hearing about this favored nations business, the conversation that Nash had with Vince about the WrestleMania payday, meaning, meaning whether it was a good year, or a bad year and anything you can offer about the ultimate warrior rumor and innuendo. I think that, uh, I think Conrad, that, uh, uh, the, the two wins for undertaker and Sean, uh, were normal booking and I, and, and logical. And I think that's why Kevin, uh, Kevin had great respect for the undertaker as everybody does. And of course, Sean was his best friend. So, uh, that was, uh, those are no brainers. Uh, and you knew that because of the, the competitive spirit of being a division one athlete that Kevin had in his background, he would, he would not, uh, it's not, up, it's not his style to call it in, in a match against two guys like that. Uh, you know, uh, and Kevin was more of an attraction than a great, uh, you know, tactician, you know, he wasn't Bret Hart hole for hole kind of guy. He was a attraction his size and, and look and so forth. Uh, but I can tell you that I don't know that if anybody, I don't remember anybody 
running to the front of the line to want to work with warrior. Uh, he was horrible. Uh, he had great charisma. He had, you know, he had the body as we know, but mechanically, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, we had a lot of guys on the roster that were better than a warrior. They just didn't look like the warrior. They didn't have his charisma. And the fact that Hulk Hogan passed the torch to, to warrior, uh, there in Toronto at WrestleMania was huge. Uh, warrior stardom would not have been nearly as, as bright and vivid. If he had not gotten the rub from Hogan and, and pinned Hogan, uh, in the, in the sky dome in Toronto, in my opinion, but he was not a real smooth worker. He didn't work on his game. He worked on his look. And so he was a whole lot of sizzle and not a whole lot of steak. And I'm sure that's going to piss off some ultimate warrior fans. Uh, I don't mean to, I'm not doing it to incite you. I'm just saying my opinion of being around the business for all these years, he was not a very uh, skilled in-ring performer. He was an attraction and simple as that. He, he, the less you see him, the more he's going to mean. And, uh, but he wasn't a highly skilled wrestler. And a lot of guys thought that, uh, our attempt to resurrect the image of, uh, the ultimate warrior was a futile attempt. And I could not agree with them more. I didn't think there was anything left in that regard, but Vince loved the character. I think he he got along with Helwig, uh, Jim Helwig, the Ultimate Warrior, uh, well, or at least he seemed like he did. Because I remember one time that that because uh, Jim Cornette was long, and that's always an adventure on an airplane. But Vince and Linda and Cornette and me and I can't remember who else was on the group. We stopped in Phoenix on the way to California to, to visit with Warrior, and that might have been uh, the going into WrestleMania 12, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, to talk to him about the match and getting back on the road. And there's all these stipulations and got to have this, got to have that. I mean, it, was, it became a, got to have a dressing, private dressing room. And one of the first things I did when I got there, uh, to, in that role was to eliminate all the private dressing rooms. I thought it was a great way to alienate people and unnecessarily. But the thing that stuck out to me was that uh, warrior used the F bomb in front of Linda and everybody there read over and over and over like almost like to try to incite a reaction because it didn't stick great of his vocabulary or his intellect. He's, he wasn't, he did have a good vocabulary and he was a smart guy, but boy, I just thought, man, this is, this is what we're bringing to our locker room. And in my role, you got to look at that. Yeah. If he was back in, in the heyday, he was, he could help us. But without well, that, that horse, that, that horse had left the barn, man, that horse had left the barn. And we were trying to, you know, it was a desperate time. What could, can we get something in here? That's going to get hot right real quicker than not. And uh, warriors availability was there. His track record was there, but the, but the ship had sailed and I don't blame Kevin whatsoever for not wanting to work with warrior. And I'm not trying to speak ill of the, of the, of the deceased. He just was a very unique cat and not well liked by a lot of people. Well, the WrestleMania show comes and goes. Scott Hall's not on it. He was supposed to be in there with gold dust. He doesn't mm -hmm. want to. So that's a wrap. Roddy Piper takes the spot instead. Undertaker gets a win over diesel in about 17 minutes. Uh, and Kevin Nash is paid 150 grand for that match. According to Jim Cornette, uh, and allegedly Jim Cornette was like, why the fuck are you paying him 150 grand? And Vince explains, I don't want Kevin to be able to say that I screwed him on the way out. Does that sound like a Vince McMahonism? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing about that 150 grand. 
you know, Corny made it sound like, and he wasn't involved in <clears throat> this particular aspect of it. He made it sound like, you know, he got 150 grand just to, uh, as hush money or whatever. I, I mean, I, I'm saying that, uh, his payday, uh, that's what his payday was. I mean, that day, I don't know that we gave Kevin any extra money above and beyond what he would normally receive in the payday, uh, you know, uh, than, than he got. I, so I'm not implying that Cornette necessarily wanted to do that, but it's fair to say that a lot of times when a, a, a wrestler's leaving a promotion, the promoter tries to find a way to short him any way he can. I mean, that's certainly been the precedent that's been set in wrestling for years and years. Is it not? Yes. Unfortunately it has been, uh, I just don't, we didn't, I'll say this for Vince and he and I've had plenty, as everybody knows, plenty of disagreements. But plenty, plenty of uh, the other side of the coin too. Uh, that's just not his style, uh, in that regard. In other words, he's more apt to give you more money so you can say, "Man, look what I'm leaving," as opposed to, uh, you know, the the the, the hush money type thing. So I think it was probably just a normal normal deal. And Kevin made a hell of a payday that day, but he was in a big 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 match at WrestleMania. So uh, getting a hundred fifty thousand dollar payday at WrestleMania is not. Uh, a rare occurrence when, when I know that I've written down seven figures for talents at WrestleMania before, uh, getting a hundred and a half is not, uh, uh, you know, a, a ground ground setting thing. Let's talk about good friends, better enemies. It's the last pay-per-view in the WWF for these guys. Vader's going to pin razor Ramon. Sean Michaels is going to pin diesel. Uh, and I guess we should just fast forward we're, we're here. It's the curtain call. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned earlier, May 19th, 1996, the gate is, uh, $328,000 hall and Nash both say uh, it's the biggest non-pay-per-view show that the WWF ever did in Madison square garden up to that point. Does that check out for you? Is it the biggest gate non-pay-per-view wise in the history of the company at that point? It sounds plausible. Sounds plausible. The ticket prices had increased as time went on, like everything else in our lives. Uh, so the tickets were a little bit, were, were lofty and healthy and, uh, there weren't empty, there were not any empty seats. Uh, so yeah, it was good. It was good. The, the roster delivered and they, as they delivered most every night, that, 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 that group of guys. So Nash says on the way to the show that day, uh, Scott looked at him and said, this is the last time we're going to be at the garden. Let's work this motherfucker stoned. <laughs> and Kevin Nash hadn't been stoned in three years, which sounds crazy, but you have to appreciate this. They've been drug tested the whole time they're here. So, All right. um, he says, when I walked in the door, the day I left, there wasn't a fucker taking steroids and nobody was smoking pot booze and pills. You could get from a doctor and alcohol's legal, but you couldn't have anything <laughs> illegal. So on the right in, when he says, Hey, we should do this match stoned. It at least crosses their mind that night. Razor is going to wrestle Hunter Hearst Helmsley, the semi-main, as we said, um, the, the finish is supposed to be where Pat wants triple H to jump razor from behind while razor is giving Tony Chimmel his chains and razor would give his chains to someone before the match. And then he wants triple H to beat him up, throw him outside, choke him with some ringside cables, and then leave him laying in the aisleway. And he's going to go back in the ring, get on the mic and say, you know, go wherever you're going, Razor Ramon. And as he's laying there, uh, the fans are saying things to him. Like, look how they're treating you razor. After all you've done, go to Atlanta and get the money. Uh, obviously, you know, the finish is going to come, uh, but afterwards he, he, he picks up the mic 
And he says, instead of say hello to the bad guy, say goodbye to the bad guy. And, and the fans are chanting, you sold out, you sold out. And he points to the curtain where he knows Vince is standing and is telling fans, you tell him to give me the money and I'll stay right here. So the, the, the fans are sort of in on this. This is before the internet is what it is now. How is it out there at this point to where so many fans knew, is it just because New York is a smart market and they were reading the quote unquote dirt sheets? I think so. The, 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 you know, if Meltzer wrote a story, you know, you had a lot of people, uh, that would pick up on it. Either they, either they were subscribing to the observer or they were getting a copy of it or it was being shared by somebody, but the, 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 this, that's a very tight little group of, uh, fans, <clears throat> pardon me. And so, uh, I, that's, that's the only way I could tell you that it got out there. It was simply word of mouth after, uh, you know, and, and if Meltzer had, if Meltzer was writing about it <clears throat> and he was, then, uh, the other, uh, 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 journalists would do, we're doing the same thing there. Cause a lot of those guys, uh, Meltzer was always the lead bull in that situation. And a lot of guys just, you know, followed what he said to either to disagree or to try to steal the thunder. So the bottom line here is, is that, uh, the word got out, the word traveled fast. It was big news. Uh, and you know, that whole wrestling war, uh, scenario was getting more prominent and the fans were eating it up. You know, they realized that competition is good for everybody. It makes everybody get better at what they do. Uh, I still believe that to be true today, quite frankly. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just a, it was just a, a situation where that, that night after that, right after the, those matches, that's when the thing started to disintegrate, pardon me. Right after those matches that we talked about, those main events, um, that's when things started to implode. And, and on that night, and, and the residual of the curtain call would then be something that we'd be talking about all these years later because it was that big of news within our world. Uh, you know, it wasn't big news, and I'm sure Dan Rather didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think uh, our fans... Uh, and you know, did because it was big news. So that's kind of how it, it, it got out there. And then, and then quite frankly, uh, you know, uh, I don't know that we did a good job. We did a great job of, 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 uh, suppressing it going forward. It's the doctor, you know, the Dr. Yankum thing and moving to diesel, all that, all that crazy shit that we did. We just, we just embellished the whole process. And made no money in the process of doing it. It was more of a revenge storyline than it was, are we going to draw money? We didn't draw a damn dime with the fake racer diesel. We'll get but, there. Let, let, yeah, I, I know we will, but I'm just saying is that this whole thing went to hell right after when they, when all those guys came back to the ring, that's when things really started unraveling. Uh, Scott Hall has said that for the weeks leading to this MSG show, Vince never sold the fact. Scott was leaving. He never tried to talk to him, never tried to work things out. But when he comes back through the curtain after his match with Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Vince calls him into his office. And when he gets there, he says, listen, you still work for me. Let's work something out. And Hall said, well, I told Bischoff I'm coming. It's a little late now. And he said he wanted to stay, that he loved that place. 
and he's talking to Vince and Shawn Michaels walks in and Shawn asked Vince, do you mind if razor and triple H come out after my match? And that's when it was agreed upon that it's going to happen. Uh, Kevin Nash tells the story a little differently than how the curtain call came to be. He says that Sean and razor went to Vince and asked if they could do it because they didn't want triple H to get any heat. And Vince had no problem with it. And Nash said, originally we were supposed to go with Vince to Smith and Walensky's and have steak and wine. That's the plan. So Sean walks in and says to Vince, I want to do this with my boys tonight. And Vince, as always Vince does says, Sean, how important is this? Is it that important? And Sean says, yes. And Vince says, we'll just do it. So it was without malice that they did it. According to Kevin Nash, uh, I guess we should mention, as we said, Sean Michaels beats diesel in a cage match that night to retain the world title after the match. Just as we said, razor and triple H come to the ring. They all hug. They go to the four corners of the ring to celebrate. And this is the curtain call. And, uh, some fan snuck a video cassette recorder, a VHS. Uh, in, I guess through his jacket or his pants or whatever. And he's shooting this from the crowd and that footage would leak out and it would become a underground tape trading, uh, collector (laughs) nightmare or dream because it's not the, the, the best looking footage, but it is cool to see something that otherwise we wouldn't have seen Nash says he remembers Davy boy going up to Vince and saying something like, what the fuck was that? These guys are going down South and you're going to let them kill the garden off. And Nash said it just steamrolled from there where as soon as they get back through the curtain, Vince didn't turn his back to Nash, but he turned just enough to signify like I'm fucking over this. (laughs) And Nash said that they did this because they loved each other and everybody had each other's back and everybody likes to use the word organic, but that's what this really was. Uh, it wasn't preconceived. It wasn't a work. It was four guys who loved each other saying goodbye and Sean said it was talked about when they went on the European tour, but it was never talked about again, as far as he knew, um, there's lots of old timers who took issue with this, you know, the, um, the Jim Cornettes of the world are not happy about the curtain call. He describes a scene where, you know, people are throwing shit. He even says, I was uh, throwing my fucking suit bag down the goddamn Madison square garden hallway. I assume everybody knows what the curtain call is. I don't need to get into it. Jerry Briscoe was walking around kicking fucking walls. He wanted to get out there and stretch them. As soon as they came back, everyone was fucking hot because what it was, they took a shit on Vince McMahon's dining room table. The guy who was paying them, the Madison square garden show was to his father and to him, his dining room at that, at the time that was the yardstick that people measured their success in the business and they had their little billionaire boys tree club go out and expose the business and do a big fucking circle jerk. And who was Vince McMahon going to discipline? It was Kevin Nash's last night. It was Scott Hall's last night and Shawn Michaels was the champion. So you hear about this. I'm sure Mm. you get a phone call. Do you hear about Mm -hmm. it the next day? Carry me through what you heard happened. I think, uh, I'm trying to think maybe Jerry Briscoe called me. And I thought he was ribbing. I said, no, they didn't do that. Come on. No, they did. So here's what happened. And he told me, and it was like, I was taken aback. Uh, cause I wasn't, I wasn't, a uh, a, a, a part of the plan or the discussion of, uh, the curtain call. So, so and I, again, I wasn't there because I had the flu, but then the, the bottom line was that, you know, it, it had not been, it had not crossed my radar, uh, leading into that event. So, uh, I didn't have a, I didn't, I was completely caught off guard. 
in in that regard. And it, I, I found it to be, I found it, I found it to be offensive as hell until you find out that they'd talk to Vince about it. And so one thing I, I understand the passion that a guy like, and two guys I respect a great deal, Cornette and, and, and Briscoe, uh, and what they said, you know, un, I'm sure they were not aware either. I don't, I don't think that Vince had signed off on this damn thing. So, uh, that's, that's what's always been a point of contention for me is that there was so much outrage, but if you're going to be out, outrageous about this, you really go, should go talk to the, to the boss. Cause he gave them, he checked the box that they could do it. So when that happened, I think I'm looking at kind of all bets were kind of half ass off at that point in time. So, and I, and I don't think that, uh, I don't think that I still to this very day, Conrad, don't believe that those guys did that to show that Vince's keister. I think they did it to, to show that they have solidarity, that they have unity, that they're, we're going to, we're not, we're not, we're going to break the mold of what the boys used to be just you know, as Bret Hart said one time, the, in the old days, wrestlers are booked like circus animals. Uh, they didn't want to be a circus animal in their view any longer. And they're going to make a statement that we're, we're going to make some changes by, you know, our philosophy and things of this nature. So, oh, hell, God, it just, it was just, uh, it was a, it was a rough night because you need that phone call and you're, I'm feeling bad anyway. Now you don't sleep a damn wink cause you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and and, uh, you know, the last thing I wanted to do is to bring that up to Vince that, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't go to the garden. I had the flu, but, uh, you know, he knew I wasn't going, but, and I, I wish I'd have been there to help you out on this deal, but there was no help to do. He signed off on it. Yeah. If they, if, if the talents had gone into business for themselves, uh, without the clearance from uh, the head honcho, then, uh, that's a different matter as it's, as it's played out. Not really that much, not, not that big a deal. And again, I think it opened everybody's eyes of what we might be able to accomplish. We captivated the, uh, they captivated the audience that night. They struck a chord. They, they found something the audience was going to really react to in a very, uh, emotional way. So the audience made that emotional investment in these cats in the, in the garden. And it closes. That's how, that's the last memory of the garden that night. That's the last thing they saw. So it was, uh, it was bold, but it was, uh, orchestrated bold. Bruce Pritchard has said that he felt it was unprofessional and the slap in the face to Vince and the McMahon family. And he personally felt it was disgraceful. He also said it was an F you to Vince. He said he felt it was stupid for Sean and Hunter to do because they're staying. And Bruce believes that Sean did ask Vince, but he feels that Vince was sort of half listening and didn't really understand what they were going to do. And Bruce doesn't believe that Sean actually laid out specifically what they were going to do. Um, and of course, Vince McMahon is even on record as saying it was a cool moment and it was a cool moment for those in the audience who knew it wasn't a cool moment for me when I saw that, because I really didn't know what I was looking at. So I was upset and there were other individuals upset and Sean would say, uh, it wasn't done to stick anybody in the eye. It was just friends expressing their care for one another. Uh, but as a wise guy once told me, it isn't show friends, it's show business. And <laughs> Jim Cornette is super hot about it. And he says he would have fired triple H because he was an underneath guy who wasn't getting over and he yep. would have taken the title off of Sean and God damn it. God damn corny. I've done it all myself. I'd have fucked him. That's what I've done. God damn it. Stanislaus Abisco would never have done this. 
I mean, seriously, that that's really the gist of it. He, he says that he would have taken the belt off Sean, would have used him to put other guys over, and he would have gotten rid of him too. And of Duh. course, this may, yeah, the, I don't know that we would have done that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, the punishment in a minute, but Meltzer wrote about this as well. And he says that, um, you know, fans knew in the crowd, what was going on. They're chanting, you sold out. And he gives a, a complete rundown of what's going on here. But one of the questions that I've always had was where the hell was Sean Michaels? I mean, not Sean Michaels, Sean Waltman, uh, rehab. There you go. Meltzer would write. Uh, the other click member, one, two, three kid wasn't at the show as his future with the company is in somewhat question after he showed up to the superstars taping on April 30th in no condition to perform and won't be back until June at the earliest. Um, so I guess we should mention the world changes in professional wrestling on May 27th. So just a couple weeks after this, uh, Scott Hall makes a shocking debut on WCW nitro when he walks through the crowd, walks into the ring, cuts a promo on what's going to be the momentum swinging WCW's direction. Of course, the NWO is right around the corner. A couple of weeks after that, Kevin Nash debuts, uh, and we're off to the races. Uh, so let's talk about the fallout of what's left here in the WWF. Uh, Sean says after the incident, Vince was getting a number of phone calls about what happened from other older wrestlers who weren't happy and quote, what happened was the same thing that happens a lot of times Vince on the ride to wherever starts getting phone calls. And honestly, it was big to the old timers in the locker room before it was big anywhere else. So Sean sort of puts the heat on some of the other guys who maybe weren't big fans of the click or knew that they weren't in line for a push. And maybe they had an ax to grind with Sean Michaels or Hunter. And they were the ones who really stirred up the shit that it really wasn't a big deal. Uh, to the crowd or even to Vince, you were really, really close with Vince at the time. Is that a fair statement? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah. He, Vince got to lose a call from people, uh, you know, and older guys are established guys in the business. Some of them weren't even there. I don't think, uh, but a lot of it was, was, were they really outraged those guys calling or were they trying to ingratiate themselves to the chairman? Right. Uh, I always look, you know, it's sad, you know, God bless chance. She said one time I said, uh, she was watching the miss America show pageant. And I said, well, you know, it's a work, honey. And, oh my God. Would you stop that wrestling stuff? Everything's not a work, honey. I said, well, you know, say it. I didn't want to watch the miss America show. So I was hoping I'd piss her off and change channels, <laughs> but they didn't happen either. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think a lot of guys are just trying to kiss ass and ingratiate themselves. Well, Mike, the, I'd never do that to you, Vince. I can hear that conversation. Well, you never have to worry about me on that deal. We all, all of us know what the garden means. And that's a true statement too, by the way, the garden was always considered as Cornette mentioned, other guys have mentioned, I mean, if you make it there, you, you, your career can be defined by how well you do in New York in the territory wise and specifically in the garden, you know, I, Bill Watts just turned 80 this week and my old mentor and he can tell you at 80, the matches that he and Bruno had in the garden, they had three of them and they, uh, the, they had the main event in the, in the old garden, the last wrestling match there, and they were in the main event. Well, he remembers those things. Now, can you imagine how many thousands of matches Cowboy had over the years in different territories and Ganya and Graham and Atlanta and so forth, his own territory, but he remembers those three matches with Bruno in the old garden and the new garden. 
as vividly as anything uh, out there because it was the garden. And of course, it's Bruno. Bruno in the garden was, was really the, 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 you know, the big time deal. That's, that was, you had your program with Bruno. Watts had three runs with Bruno. So that garden is a special place for everybody. Well, so now we know the garden is special. A lot of the old timers are taking issue. People are calling Vince. So it feels natural that people would have, uh, sort of urged or insisted that someone be punished. Uh, is one of those folks, Jim Cornette? Probably. Uh, I would, <clears throat> I would think Corny was, you know, very, we know you read his quotes, uh, very, he talked about making an emotional investment in an issue. He made a huge emotional investment in the issue and that's kind of his style. Uh, he can be abrasive and coarse, but he's a, extremely intelligent and, uh, but he's very passionate and sometimes that passion can be hard to control, but I, I would think that he would probably be one of them. And I'm, you know, Patterson might've been one, you know, uh, if Bruce didn't like something and he didn't as, by his own quotes in that regard, uh, I'm sure Pat felt similar. So, but there are others, you know, that we had a lot of older agents, you know, uh, George animal steel and Jack Lanza. Uh, all those old school guys, Tony Gurria and others, but I'm sure felt the same way. I mean, conversations I had with them were like, you know, the old deal, they, they whisper to you, what's the old man going to do about this deal? I said, I think he's got it under control. He's good. Jack, you're all right. We're all right. Move on. Cause you can't harp on it. It's like the wrestlers love to either bitch about their payday, bitch about their travel, bitch about the finish. <clears throat> and they're in the greatest business in the world. And they'll admit that privately, but, uh, it's just amazing to me that people continue to look for something to, to not like, and that may be a, even more prominent today than then. So yeah, there was Cornette was probably, he'd be on the list. No doubt about that. So Cornette, uh, is, is somebody who's going <clears> to <throat> talk to, um, triple H and tell him that he shit on the entire business. So he's going to be punished because they can't do anything to Shawn Michaels. They're only two months into his big WrestleMania title win and run now as champion. And it's been building for six or eight months or more hall and Nash are gone. So because Hunter agreed to go out there, now he's going to be punished and he needs to go apologize to everyone. And he encourages him to go apologize to all the boys in the locker room. And he does. And he even apologizes to Jim Cornette and years later. Uh, he would go on TV, he being Hunter, pronouns pal, uh, when they play some <laughs> fans camcorder version on Raw, and Hunter says, uh, we were revolutionizing the business, and I don't apologize for that. And, and, and Cornette says he never meant it. He was a fucking kick, kiss ass and a suck up then. Now he doesn't need to kiss ass and suck up because he's licking the right crack. So therefore, he doesn't need to suck anybody. But the point is, he didn't mean it when he apologized to me. He didn't mean it when he apologized to the boys. And he didn't mean it when he said he was sorry that he exposed the business, but that's Cornette's opinion. When Hunter actually sits down with Vince, Vince knows he's got to push some sort of punishment down the line just to appease everybody else in the locker room. Maybe set an example, whatever phrase you want to use. And he says something along the lines of, uh, you're going to have to learn to eat shit and like the taste of it. So the creative changes, can you confirm that the original plan for King of the ring 96 was that Hunter was supposed to be crowned King of the ring. As I recall, triple H was going to be the King of the ring in that, that year. I think that, you know, a, a lot of us saw a great upside in him. You know, I, I thought he was one of our, uh, brightest prospects at that point in time, because he was smart and durable 
you know, had a good look and all that good stuff. Had a real smart uh, head for the business. Uh, I've said this, I've told this story before, you know, when I had, if I had any issues with the click, uh, that are late or, you know, being uncooperative or whatever, uh, the one that really could always bring that home to their attention and, and, in a good way was triple H. He was easy to talk to in that regard for me. And, and uh, so that was, that was kind of how I looked at that deal. Uh, but yeah, triple H has looked earmarked to be the guy and, and I guess his I'm assuming that the grand scale of his punishment, Conrad came by not winning the King of the ring. He was still in a tournament and he put over Jake Roberts who then, who got a strong win there, who then was set up to put over stone cold, which that, that in the, in booking parlance made a lot of sense. But the bottom line is, is that I'm not aware of any other quote unquote punishment that triple H received. I don't recall him being any, his money being affected whatsoever. Uh, other than if he was booked down the card, uh, might, might have affected a little bit, but nonetheless, it wasn't a fine or a suspension or anything like that would take money out of his pocket. Uh, but he was scheduled to be the guy. And luckily as it worked out, you know, Austin got the call. So of the two C's, as we talked about, the punishment was more creative than cash. And that creative would turn his favor uh, in November. So it's about six months in November. He's going to win the intercontinental title for Mark Marrow. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. Let's talk about the punishment. Uh, Vince Russo has been on record as saying that Jim Cornette and Bruce Pritchard both wanted triple H fired. And he thought it was ridiculous. He felt like it was power trip bullshit and you know, but they should have business in mind. And he kind of didn't get the, uh, the tradition of wrestling. Is that fair to say? Cause a lot of these old timers think that, oh, you're shitting on the business, but that's because they've been ingrained and brought up that way for decades. And maybe Russo as an outsider didn't see it that way. Fair to say. Uh Absolutely fair to say. Uh, and it doesn't make anybody necessarily right or wrong. Uh, you know, I can understand guys like Bruce and Corny who were lifers and they had a certain philosophy in that regard. I shared many of those philosophies at the same, at the same, at, at the same time, but I always looked at the big picture or tried to look at the bigger picture. Uh, okay. So let's say that triple H made an error in judgment by going out there with his buddies. Let's say that happened. And, the, and it wasn't Aaron judgment. How long do you pay that price? How long, how long is that penalty? And I felt like that, uh, you know, he got, he got ostracized in the locker room. He had to, he had to make, he had to retrace the steps there and re repatch some relationships to some guys. Uh, but how many guys you really think in the locker room gave two shits about, uh, the time honored traditions or, uh, customs or whatever they cared about their paycheck. And if, uh, so I, I don't know, I, I don't, I, I just think sometimes there's a small pocket of people that made a big deal of the curtain call when a lot of people that in the same company, some in the same locker room didn't give a shit. It didn't matter. It didn't matter because it didn't affect them in their view. And if certainly an argument could be made, I, I, I admit, well, you know, you know, like Davy's comment, you're, you're letting them kill the garden. They're killing the garden. Why well, am not killing the garden? Are you kidding me? And things like that that brought to Vincent's attention. Vincent to kind of look at that and say, okay, I appreciate your passion, so to speak, but I don't, it ain't going to kill the garden and it didn't kill the garden. So, uh, but it, it, I thought the, to me, it was the, the fate of this thing and how this thing played out was just, 
almost like a novel. It's almost like a, a screenplay. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we should talk about the fallout here. Yes. It means Hunter doesn't win King of the ring, but that means you guys have to tap somebody else. And you look to a guy who maybe had been underutilized. He hadn't been featured on the show a lot, but you're going to use this as a launch pad uh, to push somebody new instead of Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And the guy chosen is Steve Austin and Steve Austin at the end of winning that tournament stands next to doc Hendricks. And when that microphone comes in front of his face, Austin 316 is born. The signs show up at Monday night raw the next night. You guys take that to the bank with an Austin 316 shirt. That is the hottest shirt in history for the company. And he is off to the races. His 97 for Steve Austin is unbelievable. Of course, he closes out 96 with, uh, the returning Bret Hart at survivor series. They have a barn burner of a match. And by the time a Royal rumble comes around, he's one of the top stars. And in the featured final four guys goes on to main event, the February pay-per-view steals the show at WrestleMania 13. And we're off to the races for one of the hottest feuds of the year with Steve Austin, stone cold, Steve Austin versus the heart foundation, Brett, no one and the like, and he becomes your champion in short order and the hottest star in the business. And I got to ask you, Jim, does any of that happen? Certainly it doesn't happen this way, but would it have happened at all without Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. The curtain call. That's such a weird thing to say, but when you rearrange the pieces, you shuffle the deck. Steve Austin comes out on top of all this. Does he don't? He does. Uh, very prominently. I can't say that, uh, it would have happened, uh, in the way that it did, but would it have happened? Absolutely. Because the old cliche goes, and I believe it, the cream will always rise to the top. Uh, you know, that's why I say, I've said it for many years, you know, talents have got to understand it's, it's imperative for them to maximize their minutes. And every time Austin went out to wrestle, it was a sense of urgency as far as his mindset was concerned, because he had finally gotten to WWF and he wasn't going to blow it. So I believe that Austin would have been a success in any event, but uh, as you mentioned, Conrad, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, in this timeline, it wouldn't happen in this manner whatsoever. So in that regard, the curtain call, uh, was a positive as it, as it, because how can you say something is not a positive if indeed what you're saying, and I agree with, is it true that the curtain call helped facilitate Austin's King of the ring win and that King of the ring win put Austin on the map and got the, got the, put the truck in gear and they're off. They went. So, uh, and so. You can't say anything's bad if it helped create, if it helped create the biggest box office sensation 
for that length of time that the business had ever seen. Without Stone Cold Steve Austin's success, I'm not so sure this company would have gone public as quickly as it did. It's so amazing when you really think about everything that changed in wrestling. You know, people think that, you know, Hall and Nash leaving to create the NWO, you know, certainly was the match that lit the wrestling business on fire. But Stone Cold Steve Austin poured gasoline over the whole thing. And none of that would have maybe happened had it not been for the curtain call, which is why I think people are still talking about it. Of course, in July of 96, Hulk Hogan turns heel for the first time. Uh, becomes the ultimate bad guy and joins the NWO. Um, the business is forever changed and you guys find yourself in an unfamiliar spot instead of leading. Now you're trying to play catch up ball. Uh, so now we'll, we'll pivot to the other side of the story. Uh, you see Hulk Hogan as a bad guy. It's getting over like crazy. Uh, the WWF is maybe sucking hind teat. and somebody <laughs> along the way says, well, Hey, if those guys are so over, why don't we just bring them back and allegedly and correct me if I'm wrong here, but Bruce Pritchard has said that this was actually the WWE attorney's idea. Uh, you were there. What can you speak about this? Was this Jerry McDivitt's idea that, Hey, you guys own the IP. Why don't you just make somebody else raise a Ramon and diesel? I can see that happening. I can see that happening. McDivitt's the best lawyer I've ever been around in my life. The battling barrister. I always called him. Uh, hell, hell of a mind, boy. He's something else. A Pittsburgh guy and him and him, and my wife are buddies, his wife, so forth. All good stuff. Uh, but he was right about the IP. The idea sucked. It was ridiculous. And, uh, it was knee jerk. Do we think it through? <clears throat> and as a former booker and someone that did this, you figure out how can we monetize this piece of creative to make us money? How can we monetize this? And unfortunately, uh, that was never, uh, considered seemingly because anybody that actually believed that the fake razor and, and diesel were going to draw money, uh, is, uh, they're on hallucinates or hallucinogenics, I guess the word is, whatever it is, they're smoking the damn, they got the, they got the chocolate cake and double big piece because it just didn't make any sense. It's never going to happen. So, uh, and I, I think that that, I don't think that did Russo any favors either. So that what, that what a great idea. Are, are you saying that Russo was involved in the booking when this happened? Wasn't he in the creative? I don't, I don't know that he was by September of 96. This doesn't feel, this feels pre Russo to me. Okay. Well, maybe it was, but bottom line is that then why I don't know how Russo would have a say he wasn't involved in creative because at that time he was working in the, uh, publications, I think. That's right. He was working on the magazine. He had started to appear a little bit as Vic Venom on the live wire show that you guys were doing on USA. Um, so chat me up when, when you're, are you in the booking meeting or do you just show up to raw and they say, okay, Jim, here's what we got you doing today. No, I'm in the, I'm in the meeting and, and, uh, I think it was, I don't know. I I've always wondered why that those decisions were made. Uh, I thought that, you know, I, I was very, very content, uh, to continue to improve as a, as a broadcaster and to hopefully earn more, uh, significant minutes on the TV, uh, doing my work as to what I came there to do. Uh, and then it was given to me that this is, you know, uh, what we're going to do and you're going to be the guy. And I was never told 
I thought I was going to become like a heel announcer, but uh, I never got the discussion. I was going to become a manager because that was never in my, my, uh, my, my plan whatsoever. Cause I didn't think I'd be good at it. And I didn't, why, why use me when you got other guys that are much better that you could use. Uh, but my, but, but nonetheless, uh, the idea was, I, I could see that idea coming from, uh, non wrestling people. So let's talk about, you know, why they would have tried it. I, I guess we should mention there were, there were weeks in 96 and the second half of 96 here where nitro was winning 3.6 you know, to Raw's 1.6. And there was another week where it was 3.1 to 1.5. So fans are certainly liking a more reality-based product, you know, got yep. the, the NWO breaking into the WCW production truck versus, you know, some over-the-top, maybe silly cartoon characters for the WWF presentation. So you guys decide to turn good old JR heel <laughs> and bring back Razor and Diesel, and you, you tag... Uh, I guess his name is Rick Bogner, uh, from mm-hmm. to be Razor Ramon and Glenn Jacobs, the former Isaac Yankum DDS to be diesel. I think the, the protocol here is we get their gear made and we send them some tapes and say, learn to do these m- moves and mannerisms. Do you guys do a walkthrough or is really the first time anybody sees this live on raw? I think Cornette did some work with those guys about, uh, uh, Glenn's or uh, Diesel's mannerisms and so forth. And Corny had a long history with, Gl- with Glenn Jacobs, who we hired. Uh, you know, I, I went to a Smoky Mountain. I saw him in Smoky Mountain. I was doing some commentary for Cornette at that time while I was with WWE. Uh, so he was like a no-brainer to sign. I, <clears throat> I was completely unaware who Rick Bogner was. Uh, and don't mind saying it. You know, I, it wasn't, I'm just don't knock on the, on the dude. Canadian cat. I know that. Uh, which don't make him bad or good. Just makes him, he's Canadian. So I didn't, I wasn't around him. I didn't know him well, but he, he had a, at a distance, uh, when, when, uh, prepared for television, he looked a little, he had a little razor tendencies. And of course, uh, Glenn had that se- near seven foot, uh, frame as, as Kevin Nash did. So, uh, that's kind of how that worked out. And we weren't really, Dr. Yankin was never going to draw any money. It's another stupid gimmick. It made no sense. It's eye rolling. Nobody could t- attach to it because they didn't want to be embarrassed that they're a fan of something so bad. And it wasn't Glenn's fault. The gimmick was bad. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't know if they, I don't think we did a walkthrough. I might've walked through. I can tell you how, the, how my walkthrough went the night before I did the promo in Hershey introducing these guys or talk, doing my heel promo thing. Uh, I rode from, from Philly to Hershey with Jerry Briscoe in a sleet ice storm. And, uh, my native American compadre was not really happy driving on the ice. And I, me, I would have been less happy, but all the way there from Philly in in slow traffic, uh, I recited that promo and it wasn't, I just, I had bullet points and I started putting all the sentences together. So when I got to TV, I had the promo down, uh, and, and so I was confident we're going to be, I was going to be able to do that. And I was excited about it because it's something new again, thinking if I was still going to go back to the commentary booth, I was going to be a little bit more edgy, so forth, so on. It was all fine. But some of the things I said in the promo got cheered. Yeah, they did. 
So I don't know. It's, it's, it's like swimming upstream. I didn't mind trying it, but I sure as hell had no envisions whatsoever of becoming a quote unquote heel manager. You know, I don't, I'm not Jim Cornette or Bobby Heenan or, or Gary Hart or any of those great ones, you know, uh, just not, I, I, I would not, I don't, that's not my skill set, And so I didn't feel good about stepping into that world, but it, that hadn't really been determined. I guess we should mention that in the middle of all this, uh, between the curtain call and now the WWF had sued WCW for, um, them portraying that these guys were really invading WCW from the WWF and, uh, Scott Hall was using a lot of his old razor Ramon mannerisms and they're being portrayed as characters from the WWF. So there is an ongoing lawsuit. And then on the September 6th edition of raw, which I believe was on a Friday night, uh, you said that we're breaking the biggest story of all right now. And it's that big daddy, cool diesel and the bad guy, razor Ramon are on their way back. And I have that on good authority from very reliable sources. And Kevin Kelly is saying that's unbelievable news and what a huge story it would be. And later in the show, you reiterate when you've been in the business, as long as I have, there are some sources, sources you really rely on. And they tell me diesel and razor Ramon are on their way back. And of course that gets WCW panicked a little bit, because at this point, according to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, they're still working on what they call deal memos, not actual contracts. Uh, so they offer the guys a bump and pay. Now, Eric Bischoff denies that, but both Scott Hall and Kevin Nash say, when you did this angle, they got a bump and pay. Uh, and you even go on your hotline and say that, you know, I am steadfast in my story and my sources. I do know negotiations between razor and diesel and their representatives more specifically and representatives of the WWF are ongoing this week. And you're trying to keep people abreast of the situation. And it's even the lead story on the WWF's America online site. Uh, and Vince McMahon is asking you to apologize for that statement, but you're still milking it. And you're going to do that in your, uh, your big speech on November 23rd in Hershey on September 9th, though, Bischoff does a prodigy chat and tells fans, Hey, they're under contract and they're not going anywhere. Um, of course we know the story. Uh, it's going to be an interesting promo from you. It gets a lot of attention. Uh, Jim Cornette has, has worked with these guys and in the process of getting them ready, loses even more respect for diesel and says that, uh, diesel has fucking six moves. If you count the hair flip five, if you don't, uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's cold boy. <laughs> uh, and he says, it's going to be easy for these guys to uh, portray the character. Scott Hall has been on record as saying he took no issue. Uh, with Rick Bogner portraying the Razor Ramon character. He just wishes he would have called him so he could have sold him some of his old Razor Ramon gear, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. And, and of yeah, course, we know it really worked out for Glenn Jacobs. This fake diesel character is not long for this world. Uh, but fast forward to October 97, and he's going to become Kane, and he's off to the races. The promo, though, is really something else. It comes one day after that In Your House Mind Games pay-per-view on September 22nd. Uh, you're going to be in the middle of the ring. And you're going to talk about how Vince McMahon has fired your ass and he has no, you have no loyalty to the WWF. Your only loyalty is to you. And it's because you left a great job in Atlanta where you were working with the national football league and the Atlanta Falcons and another wrestling organization. But now you wanted to be here, the recognized leader. And they made you debut at WrestleMania nine in a sheet. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they t you talked about how you'd been fired before and, 
how much you hated living in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, and here you go. I want to bring back one of your favorites. Here's the bad guy, Razor Ramon. A really, really good promo from you, though. What did Vince think of your promo? He loved it. He loved it. And the irony of that promo, uh, I think the, I think it's still the delivery and the tone, tenor, et cetera, still would hold up today, but it was not written by writers. It wasn't written by somebody disconnected from me, uh, or the person delivering the interview, in this case, myself, uh, it was my guts and, you know, reciting this promo over and over ad nauseum to poor ass Jerry Briscoe on that sleet filled ride from Philly to, uh, Hershey. Um, you know, it just, it, it clicked. And, but it goes to show you that if you give somebody that's got some skill, uh, bullet points and the right motivation, they can do better themselves than somebody writing for them in a more sterile, uh, environment, which is kind of what I see, uh, scripted promos being so, uh, but yeah, Vince liked it and he didn't hear it. He had never heard the promo until, uh, I did it. And the one that really, uh, it resonated to was monsoon who I love like a father because, uh, that was part of the deal was I was going to start being, uh, an asshole of monsoon. And I said, man, that's what we are to do. <laughs> you know, I, it's all, but you gotta remember, Hey, you're playing a character. It's fiction. Do your, do your thing, the best of your ability and, and call it a day. And that's what we did. So, but Vince liked the promo. It got over. Well, I can only imagine how it would have played at this, at this point in our lives, Conrad with social media as it is. Uh, that, that promo would have been probably considered bigger than it was even then. If it had the, the juice that we have now on social media, but it was, it was good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the departure of doing something different. I just didn't want to become a manager. I guess we should mention that, uh, in this promo, you out Vince McMahon as being the owner, which has never even been really acknowledged on the show up until this point, but here you're very clear that he's the owner and it does feel real. It feels like you've pulled the curtain back a little bit and it feels real because a lot of it is, I mean, you, you told the truth in your promo, but you made, uh, the reality fit the fiction. Of course, razor and diesel don't get over and, uh, this doesn't last long. I guess the highlight of their run is the in your house, 12 pay-per-view the challenge Owen and bulldog for the tag titles. Of course, thankfully Owen and bulldog won. uh, Bogner makes one last pay-per-view appearance, the Royal rumble 97. He's the first guy eliminated from the match and he's not seen again on TV. Yeah. And as we said, Glenn got repackaged. Um, it's, Connie, it's ironic here on this, uh, at this moment in our conversation this week that the curtain call, uh, indirectly helped this helped everybody discover the stone cold Steve Austin character, the curtain call as it would play out, helped, uh, Glenn Jenkins, get rid of Dr. Yankum, have a stop off as a phony diesel. But more importantly, it took him to Kane and Kane became one of the longest running main event stars in the history of the company. So when you go back and say the boy, look at all the damage that happened in the garden. Well, first of all, we know the garden wasn't killed. Uh, business continued, uh, it helped create a new atmosphere, a new attitude for WWE and just in the sense of two guys, Steve Austin and Kane. Uh, they, they were byproducts of that chaos. That's not a bad, that's, that's, that's kind of a win to me. So the curtain call was, 
what it was. Ace unsavory to some, I get it. But God almighty, I don't know that. But the fact that we could get Austin and Kane both out of that scenario, uh, uh, squeeze that out of the fruit, pretty damn good. Uh, yeah, pretty good for maybe everyone except Rick Bachner. I guess we should mention that. Right. Uh, well, correct. You're he, right. You're right. No, you're right about that. He's done after this uh, one shot, uh, this one last shot at the Royal Rumble. Uh, his contract is going to expire. He had a one-year deal. And then after that, he goes back to New Japan, uh, where he's going to be wrestling as a uh, big Titan or Rick Titan. And, uh, he has a funny story where he says, you know, Vince was sort of famous for whenever, you know, he hired a new guy on, he would give employees and staff members and wrestlers his home number and say, listen, call me anytime day or night with questions. And so when Rick hadn't been booked in a few weeks, he calls Vince at home one day to see what's up. <laughs> and when Vince answers, allegedly he says, Rick, don't ever call me at home again and hangs up, which I think is fucking hilarious. Yeah. I, I never knew about the. Vince passing out his phone number story, uh, uh, until I, I read it on our notes, but, uh, it didn't sound like him quite frankly. I mean, but, but you know, I don't know. Rick, Hey, Rick's got a story and, and, and if, he, if that happened, it happened, but I can see it happening both ways. I just, I never, I would never understand why Vince would give everybody a home phone number when he had, he was at, because here's the deal. He's, he was probably at the office more than he was at home. So your chances of catching him at home are, like you said, maybe on a Sunday afternoon type thing. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I can see Bogner's reason calling too. He just faded away, man. He just faded away. And it wasn't a bad hand. It wasn't a bad hand at all. I'm trying to figure out how we got him. Somebody, it may have, he may have been a recommendation from the hearts. I'm not sure. Because I think he had ties to the Calgary territory at one time. But I'm, I may be wrong about that too. Let's go to uh, Twitter. We asked you guys, Hey, do you have a question? Uh, we would love to, uh, take your questions here on the show. And I guess we'll talk about what we're doing next week in a minute, but what you need to know is Jr. grilling is where you can find us on Twitter. That's our official show account. Jr. grilling at Jr. grilling. So check it out on Twitter. Throw us a follow there. Uh, we did one last poll on my account this week. We'll talk about that in a minute, but if you want to vote in the next poll, you need to follow us on Twitter at Jr. grilling. Uh, quick question here from Brian breaker. The introduction of fake razor was on raw. And that was the day I started to prefer WCW to the WWF. In my opinion, <laughs> it's the worst move creatively. The WWF made during this time. Did JR realize it was going to be such a stink bomb when he was first handed the creative for this? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm unstink worthy. I exactly knew what was going to happen. It was he, he, look in the analysts of pro wrestling, uh, it's like, uh, I'll give you an old school, uh, couple of what I'll give you two examples real quick. One was when Snooker left WWF at one point, And, uh, I remember the, the company brought in a, another Islander named Sifi Afi to make him the next Snooker. It failed miserably. He looked good, but nobody, if you're going to make me a, give me a, a Polynesian Superman, I want Snooker. I don't want a guy that looks like Snooker. that smells like Snooker. You know, that acts like snooker because he ain't snooker. Same thing when JYD left mid South cowboy was hell bent on auditioning, booking every available black star he could find to see who was going to replace dog. Cause it had to be another African American. And I always thought that was a mistake. Uh, and, and, and the irony of that whole deal, you know, we tried, uh, you know, Brickhouse Brown and, you know, 
gosh, all kinds of guys. I mean, seriously, all kinds of guys, pork chop cash, uh, tons of guys, but nonetheless, it didn't work. And we had the guy on our, on a roster already there named Hacksaw Butch Reed that could have stepped in and taken dog's place. If that's where you want to go seamlessly, but in any event, those, those copycat things just rarely work. Uh, the fans realize, especially today, it's just a, it's a, it's lazy booking. Uh, you're not creating something new. You're just trying to recreate something old and more often than not, that don't work. Uh, Lackhand wants to know, was there anyone else who was considered to play the parts of diesel and razor, but it just didn't work out? No, I don't think so. I don't remember anybody, uh, quote unquote auditioning or being considered. I'm, I'm probably, I'm sure there probably was, but a lot of it was the look thing. You know, they had to have the physical appearance as best we could get. And Glenn fit the mold for diesel perfectly because of the size and all that we talked about. And then, like I mentioned earlier, Bogner, if you're glancing, Bogner had some, uh, uh, physical traits that, uh, that he shared with Scott Hall. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody else, I can't remember anybody else in the hunt for that and Bogner needed a job. So he didn't question it. And Glenn Jacobs is just the ultimate team player. So, uh, he, he, if he had issues speaking of Glenn, he kept them to himself. Uh, and again, it led to something much bigger and better for him anyway, because we knew that Glenn was a team guy. You could, you could rely on him. Big, big trait. When you're talking about talent, can I rely on you? And Glenn Jacobs always, the answer was always a very prominent. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, but the, you normally this copycat shit just don't work. Fenton Riley wants to know, my question is if Hall and Nash had stuck around and never made the jump to WCW. Do you think the click would have ever become an on-screen stable like the NWO or DX did later? Absolutely. They, 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 those, those guys, whether you liked them or you don't like them to this day or that day, uh, they, they, they found lightning in a bottle and they found something that worked, whether it was their organic vision and we knew it all along how great it was going to be. I don't know that, but I do know that they had great chemistry. They were organic. And what I saw on TV was what I normally saw in a very similar incarnation, uh, in the locker room area. So, uh, yeah, I think, and, and look, that was kind of some of the things that I was thinking about and others have talked about. We got to change how we're presenting our product with some new stars, new faces, give some guys, some new opportunities to carry the ball. So, but I think that they, to me, it would have been a layup, uh, as far as them becoming a a faction in WWF at that time. And they would have been very, very good at it too. All those four guys together, uh, Waltman included out of his rehab deal. You know, we, we just try to take care of Sean. We, Sean Waltman is one of the most lo- beloved guys in the business. And, uh, and I think you look at him as a little brother or something. You know, I've, he's the famous guy that called me one night and said, God damn it. I know I was getting paid by the pound. He was the smallest guy in some of these matches. He thought his payoff was a little low, but that's nothing neither here nor there. Uh, here's a fun question. We've talked about this a lot today, but here's another comparison. Stephen Flynn wants to know what was the more important accident for the company? The curtain call, which created Austin 316, or Montreal, which created Mr. McMahon? Whew. Well, man, that's a hard one to say. Uh, you can't have peanut butter and jelly without both peanut butter and jelly. And Austin had to find the perfect foil to, uh, to, to work with. 
and Vince became the, the, the most significant heel in the entire attitude era for WWE without a doubt, not even close in my view. So it's kind of hard to say, I would have to say discovering Austin first would be number one and one a would be, uh, the Montreal screw job where Vince became, uh, this we discovered he was an amazing heel, uh, when he's, when he's not at the grill position or announcing. And, uh, so I think the Austin things first, but certainly right there with it was the, the, the guy that he danced with and drew all that money with and, and created all the success. And that would be uh, Vince. Vince was an amazing heel. He loved doing it. He, he loved being it. And to the point where even today, you know, the Mr. McMahon character, people actually believe that Vince in real life is that guy. And that's not accurate. One last question. And then we'll talk about what we're doing next week. This one comes to us from the downturn podcast. Did Jr. enjoy portraying a heel on TV? I thought he was damn entertaining. How do you like that one? McMahon? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Well, you know, it's, uh, uh, it was, I was a little defiant and, and, uh, and, and awful, uh, she told me one time, he says, God damn, you're, you're, uh, you're full of yourself, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, it was fun. It was a nice, uh, it's like going on a vacation and spending one day at Disneyland standing in the, in the lines. It's kind of cool to do it once. Uh, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be something I'd want to do every weekend. And that's kind of how I looked at, uh, being a, a heel. My point was always the same. I thought my skill set was best qualified to be a, a broadcaster and not a, uh, manager or, or a bump taking character. I sure as hell didn't want to get into that business. Uh, so, but I, it was fun for a short time, but, uh, I just, it was hard to determine how much fun it was going to be because I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Conrad, I didn't know what the eventual, what's the end game here. And that's the big issue I'd have. My biggest bitch would be, what is our end game here? To me, it was just to confuse the marketplace a little bit, uh, to, you know, make our statement that we're not, not taking this lying down type thing. And we own the intellectual property. How many wrestling fans even know what IP means? I didn't know what it, I was in a wrestling ministry for years and what IP meant. Right. It, it didn't matter. So, uh, I, I think that, uh, the heel thing was a fun departure, but what was the big picture? That's going back and talking about the punishment of triple H. What is our big picture here? We got a young guy that's six, four, that's in great shape, uh, has a student of the game. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't, he's no drugs. So why would we forsake those traits, uh, to quote unquote, take somebody to the woodshed for their punishment, punish it. Punishment was doled out and we move on, but that firing this and taking the belt off Sean and all these uh, atrocities. Uh, you know, was, I didn't, I just didn't agree with the severity of the atrocities and how, uh, it related to terminating careers, because here's the thing. <clears throat> if Shawn Michaels had been fired or taken the title off of him, what's the, where's he going to go? We know where he's going. He's going down with his buddies. And now what they're getting is they're getting the arguably at that time, uh, one of the top two in ring performers in the history of the business. So you're going to give that to him. You get rid of the young guy, triple H. You're going to have your top star in the world. One of the greatest workers next to Rick, the Nate, they're two, they're heading one and one a depending on your preference. 
So that didn't make any sense in the big picture. So I just think that I think that some of those decisions were made out of anger and frustration and not out of uh, thought and thinking things through. How is this going to help us down the road? And that's got, always got to be your vision when you're a booker or something along those lines. How are we paying this off? And what is our end game? Well, I don't know. We're not there yet. Well, bullshit. And that's a lot of wrestling that way this, these days. A lack of long-term planning is seen very prominently on television every single week. Well, and we appreciate you tuning in to Grilling JR every single week. We'll see you next week right here on Westwood One. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.